Well, today we celebrate 24 years of God's faithfulness in building and preserving Hope Bible Church. Through the years, the Lord has preserved Hope Bible Church and His grace has carried us through many dangers, toils, and snares. Last year, at our anniversary service, Pastor Leek walked through the story of Hope Bible Church. And if you remember, it's not a story of instant success and easygoing and abundant provision. Rather, it's a story of an incredible amount of hard work and sacrifice and many hardships this last year, perhaps being the most difficult of all. But through it all, the Lord has been faithful and He has rewarded the faithfulness of His people with much fruit. Uh, Pastor Leek said it many times over the years, the vision of Hope Bible Church is to establish a church that is based on the Bible, where the expo- expositional preaching of God's Word permeates every aspect of, God's, of the church and spills over into strengthening other local churches. Now, if a vision like that strikes you as common and normal, and of course, why would you do anything else? You need to understand that just before the founding of Hope Bible Church, just a couple years prior, there was a book published called The Purpose Driven Church, which has since sold over one million copies. In this book, the author didn't promote a particular kind of church, but rather promoted the idea that the way you should determine what kind of church you should be is to go out and survey the community and ask them what kind of church they would like to come to and what kind of music they would like and what kind of teaching they would like and then become that. Well, as as you can imagine, books on the church don't tend to sell very many copies because they tend to be limited within the theological circles of the author who writes them. But the purpose-driven church transcended many boundaries and really defined a generation of pastors in that way. In that cultural context, having a vision to plant and grow a church built on the Bible was, and frankly still is, very uncommon. Now, where does such a vision come from? Uh, why is it so important to aim that aim all that you do uh, to make sure it is rising out of the clear teaching of Scripture as opposed to the preferences of the culture? It comes from one core reality, namely that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. And as Lord, He has authority to tell the church what He wants, and we have the duty to carry it out. The Bible, and especially the New Testament, is not the collected reflections of ancient people on spirituality. It is the divine revelation from Jesus Christ concerning Himself and salvation and the church. Most of the New Testament letters in particular were written to churches with instructions on what to believe and how to conduct themselves. And when the Lord of the church speaks, the church must listen and obey. And as it says in Scripture, how can they hear if they don't have a preacher? And so the principle that drove Pastor Leek for 24 years is just that. He preached the Word of God so that the people of God would hear and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. He was 
not the first to be driven in that way, of course. The Apostle Paul was motivated by the same commitments. His life was devoted to the proclamation of the Word of God. This wasn't something he did because he seemed to be really good at it or because other people looked at his life and said, hey, you have certain gifts, maybe you should be an apostle and proclaim Christ. And he certainly didn't do it for the money or because it made life easy for him. Had it been any of those reasons, he would have quit early on and we wouldn't have most of the New Testament. There was one primary reason that Paul gave himself to the ministry of apostleship and proclamation of the gospel with complete abandon and unwavering commitment. He didn't have a choice. He was God's slave. Near the end of his telling of the story of Hope Bible Church last year, Pastor Leake said this, My greatest concern for the future is that the zeal for the vision of this church will fizzle out among the church members as leaders focus on less, lesser important things. Well, to the degree that the vision of the church is the vision of Christ, to have his word proclaimed and obeyed and spread, there is only one way to guarantee that that vision will not fizzle out. We must come to understand that we don't have a choice but to carry it out. We are God's slaves. That's what we're going to see today in the text and in the coming weeks from this introduction to Titus. If you're there, follow along as I read Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. As we study Paul's letter to Titus, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the conduct of the believer starting with the qualifications for elders and then God's standards for men and women of various ages and stages of life. And then finally, how God expects us to live among unbelievers. The the central verse in this letter, both literally and figuratively, as we saw a few weeks ago, is chapter 2, verse 14, which tells us that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. In light of the centuries-old reputation of the Cretans that they were always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, Paul's concern for the Christians on Crete is that they they live radically different lives uh, as a demonstration of the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, Christ did not die merely to stamp your golden ticket to heaven. Nor did Christ die so that Christians would clean up their act of the most blatant sins of society. No, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ 
and the securing of our eternal destiny demands that those who follow Jesus live fundamentally different lives than everyone else. Unlike the false religions of the world that say you have to change your life in order to have the hope of entering some kind of eternal destination, the Bible teaches that Jesus saves his enemies and then he transforms them. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So to be a Christian, a true Christian as defined by the Bible, is to be someone who has put your faith in the life, in in Jesus' sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection as the only basis upon which you can be reconciled to a holy God who made you. But it doesn't end there. Once you come to grips with what it means to be reconciled to God, your entire life must change. We understand this when it comes to child adoption, for example. When a child from another culture is adopted by an American family, we understand that that child naturally needs to change their language. They need to change their tradition, maybe even their clothing, depending on the, the original culture. Their relationships may change. Their diet changes. Everything in life about them changes because they are brought into a new family with a new culture. Well, to be adopted by God means to have an entirely new identity, purpose, and motivation for living. And that's what this letter that Paul writes to Titus is all about. But as Paul begins this letter, he reminds Titus of what drives his apostolic ministry, namely to proclaim the hope of eternal life that God's elect might believe and be strengthened by the gospel which results in godly living. Now, Paul is very purposeful in what he says here in these first four verses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's not just giving us a standard greeting. In fact, if you were to read and look at the beginning of all of Paul's epistles, this is one of the longest introductions that he gives with the exception of the book of Romans. Paul is not known for lengthy introductions, so when there is one like there is here, that means that there is important truth behind what he's saying, and we must give it our full attention. On the surface, it would seem like Paul is just giving some biographical information, and to some degree that's true, of course, but embedded within that is an explanation of his apostolic ministry uh, that gives us truths that are critical for our own lives as well. In fact, in this introduction, we discover three ingredients that fuel a life that is zealous for good deeds. This is not today's outline. This is the outline of the text that's going to take us several weeks to get through. In this text, we're going to see that the three ingredients for being fueled for zealous, being zealous for good deeds are knowing your position from God, knowing your purpose from God, and knowing your promise from God. If you don't know who you are, You'll be easily swayed by the shifting sands of your emotions and the pressures around you. If you don't know why you're here, you'll be easily distracted by lesser goals and purposes. And if you don't know what God has promised, the things of this world will become far more, far too important to you. Now, obviously, as you can see, Paul doesn't convey these truths through didactic teaching, but he does it as he is reflecting on his own life 
and ministry. And as he reflects on his life, we can reflect on our lives. This is something that Paul invites us to do when he says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And so in saying that, he presents himself as a model to be followed. And so as he opens his letter to Titus, he provides for us a way of thinking about life that is essential to propel a life zealous for good deeds. Now, these truths are so important to developing a a zeal for good deeds that I cannot in good conscience cover all of them in one sermon. So today, we're just going to get a running start at that first point, which again, the first ingredient for fueling a life of good deeds is knowing your position from God. If you're familiar with Paul's epistles, you know that it's normal for him to identify himself in some way. That's standard in ancient letter writing, just as it is in modern writing. And so the fact that he does that is not all that significant, but it's what he says about himself that is of great significance. Modern letters and emails are formatted in such a way that usually at the end is when you see the sender their name, perhaps they will have their credentials, perhaps their, their title and other information about themselves. And sometimes that information is just intended for identification purposes. Hey, this is who I am. But sometimes there's an underlying message behind that of, this is who I am. So you need to listen. And we see that in Paul's epistles as well. He was often writing in response to the false teaching and improper behavior in the churches. And And so he was almost always establishing his apostolic authority at the beginning of his letters to ensure that the people people took the content of his letters seriously. But even in that, Paul himself didn't prop himself up as the authority, as if he had some innate authority that was his because of his birth or accomplishments that he had made. He didn't say, you need to listen to me because of all that I've done. Instead, Paul was always clear that his authority was derived which is to say that Paul was given his authority from God. And more than that, Paul understood himself exclusively in relationship to God. That brings us to the wording of the the point that we're starting today. Again, the first ingredient that fuels a a life zealous for good deeds is knowing your position from God. Meaning, God gives you your position, or you could say your identity. He tells you who you are. And in this text, we see three identities that are true for the believer, which fuel a life zealous for good deeds. First, we're going to see that we are slaves of God. Second, We're going to see that we are ambassadors for Christ. And third, we're going to see that we are chosen of God. We only have time for the first two today. So identity number one, we are slaves of God. Look at the text and notice what Paul says right up front. He says, Paul, a bondservant of God. A bondservant of God. Paul identifies himself this way in Romans and Galatians and Philippians. So this isn't something unusual or new. But the word bondservant there is doulos in the Greek. And the problem is doulos does not mean bondservant. Doulos means 
slave. In Deuteronomy 15, we read that if a Jew was destitute and they had no way to provide for themselves, they could actually sell themselves into slavery to a fellow Jew for seven years. And by that way, get some money that they could then take once those seven years were over to provide for themselves and their family. However, if that slave loved their master and they decided that they wanted to actually prosper in their master's home for the rest of their life, they could choose to indenture themselves for the rest of their life to that master. And all they'd have to do is say, Master, I'd like to be your indentured slave forever, and so let's go to the front of the house and let's find an awl, and why don't you pierce my ear with that awl? That doesn't sound painful at all, does it? I don't think they even had ice to numb the ear. That's often what's been called a bondservant. They bound themselves by choice to their master. Paul is not saying that he made the choice to bind himself to God. In fact, quite the opposite. This week in listening to something else, I heard a pastor say that God never overrides a person's will. If you've been praying for someone to be saved and you've been praying and praying and praying and they've not been saved, well, the explanation he gave is that as much as you might desire for them to be saved and as much as God desires for them to be saved, God will never override somebody's will. That might sound nice, but that's devastating because if that's true, Paul himself would never have been saved and neither would anybody else. Paul was a slave of sin and a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. He was lost in his false religion. He hated Jesus. His life mission was to imprison anyone who followed Jesus. And it was on that mission that God shined the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ into his heart and changed his will to believe. One of the truths of the gospel is that we have been purchased by God. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. When the Apostle Paul saw in his vision, when he was in heaven, the the Lamb taking the scroll from the Father on the throne, he said of those four living creatures and the elders around the throne that they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." Or in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul was warning against sexual immorality, he said, you have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. We have been purchased by God. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and called upon Him as Lord, you have been purchased by God. Now, there's only one context in which human beings can be purchased. And that's in the context of slavery. If you have been purchased, you are the property of the one who purchased you. You belong to them. You have, or they have complete control and authority over you. Self-determination is no longer a right. The ability to do whatever you want is no longer an option. 
God purchased Paul from the slave market of sin, and from that moment on, he considered himself to be a slave of God. This is why Paul's life was completely given over to God and his purposes. He said to the Philippians, for example, for to me to live is Christ. Elsewhere, he said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. So whether he was preaching the gospel or training men like Timothy and Titus or making tents with Priscilla and Aquila or evangelizing the guards who were guarding him in prison, Paul viewed his life as belonging to God. It didn't matter if people believed. It didn't matter if he was mocked and rejected. It didn't matter if he was stoned and left for dead or if he was uh, swimming for a night and a day in the sea after a shipwreck. He knew that he had no right whatsoever to do what he wanted. He had no right to ignore what God called him to do. He had no right to give up because obeying God cost him too much. He was obligated by virtue of the fact that he was purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ to obey his master. And beloved, this isn't just true of Paul. It is true of anyone who has been saved by God. The Christian confession is Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Kurios is the Greek word for Lord, and Lord is a good translation. The problem is we hear it so much, we don't really remember what it means. Lord means master. And masters are masters because they own slaves. Now, it's true that there are significant differences between slavery in first century Palestine and the slavery that has been taking place in recent centuries. But the reality at the center of all slavery is that slaves are the property of their masters. Ancient slaves weren't just manual laborers. They were doctors and teachers and business managers and a host of occupations. But a slave was always owned. Masters had complete control over their slaves. Sometimes people squirm over the fact that Jesus never actually condemned slavery. But how could he? He has more slaves than anybody has ever had. The problem with human slavery is that people assume that once you become a slave, somehow you lose your humanity and your dignity and your worth. And so they're treated wickedly like animals. But Jesus doesn't do that with his slaves. No, he he loves his slaves. He cares and provides for his slaves. In fact, the only way he has slaves is because of the fact that he died for them. He treats them as his friends and indeed even as a part of his family. In John 15, Jesus said this, You are my friends if you do what I command you. Have you ever said that to your friends? Yeah, hey, I really enjoy being with you. I'd love to be your friend, but here's the deal. 
You have to do everything that I say. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves for the slave... No no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends for for all things that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Now pay close attention. Jesus there is not denying that we're slaves. Again, he still demands our obedience. He's just saying... You're still my slave, but I'm going to treat you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you as my friend. We are still slaves, but he treats us as friends. Well, because a slave is owned, and because a slave does not have the right of self-determination or self-will, that means that the slave must look to their master uh, for instruction about everything. Everything from what to wear, what schedule to keep, what tasks to accomplish, how to accomplish those things. And that's precisely the position of the Christian. Salvation, again, is not defined as winning some ticket to heaven. It is defined as a life of self-denial and following Jesus. He himself said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Following Jesus is not an easy task. Consider this example of the kind of self-denial Jesus requires. In Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 5, Jesus says this, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And we as his slaves can say, Oh, I can do that, Jesus. I can rebuke. Then he says, If he repents, forgive him. All right, I can do that if they mean it. And then he says, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. What? Forgive someone seven times in the same day? Are you crazy? How is that even possible? Does Jesus not understand the kind of suffering that can come to us at the hands of others? Well, the radical nature of this command was not lost on the disciples either. Their response was, Lord, increase our faith. They knew that what Jesus was demanding from them was not something anyone could do naturally, but required supernatural enablement. To them and to us, forgiving someone seven times for repeated offenses is a big deal. It requires supernatural ability and demonstrates extraordinary faith. And I think Jesus perceived in their thinking that the disciples were were having this thought that, man, if, if I did do that, if I could, that would be good stuff. I would I would be worthy of praise because that's an extraordinary feat. Because listen to what Jesus says to response to their uh, statement of increase our faith. Verses 6 to 10, Jesus says this, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, but it, and, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? Will he not say to him, 
prepare something for me to eat and probably clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you can eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, listen carefully, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. Friends, we need to be really gripped by what Jesus is saying here. Jesus sets himself forth as a master who has high demands for his slaves. And when his slaves accomplish those demands and are looking for high praise, he says, you shouldn't expect high praise. You've only done what I've asked you to do. I own you. I have the right to say and ask you to do whatever. I wonder how that strikes you. Is that your understanding of Jesus? That Jesus expects extraordinary things from you and after you have exhausted yourself trying to do everything Jesus says and you come to Him and say, Jesus, I'm done, and you're expecting some kind of affirmation or attaboy, Jesus just says, did you do it? Good, okay, i got something else for you to do. That's an exhausting way to think about Jesus. I hope that's not how you think about Jesus. Because I don't think this text is intended to convey that, in large part because there's so many other passages of Scripture that reflect what the character of Jesus really is. But before we breathe a sigh of relief and say, okay, good, Jesus isn't like that, we do have to ask, what in the world is Jesus saying here? I think the answer is clearly this. What Jesus wants us to know in saying this is when he commands us to do something that we think is exceptionally difficult, what should determine our response to that command is the understanding that Jesus is our master and I am his slave. And so I must do what he says. As we will study in the letter to Titus, which someday we'll get to the meat of it, there is a manner of life that God calls us to that is not normal. It doesn't reflect what the culture thinks is a a normal way of living. Jesus pulls us one direction in life, and most of the people around us pull us another direction of life. And if we're going to live a life of sustained submission to Jesus, we have to be fueled by this reality that we are His slaves, that we have been bought with a price, that we don't belong to ourselves. We don't have a choice in how we live. We must do what He says, even if it comes at great personal cost. And if that is true of our individual lives, it is also true of us as a church corporately. What we do when we come together on Sunday mornings and when we meet in homes or when we do evangelism or counseling or discipleship or marriage classes or parenting classes, all of those things are guided by and informed by Christ's instructions through His Word. There is, believe it or not, a biblical reason that we don't do a light show while we're singing. 
there is a biblical reason that we keep the lights on all the way throughout the service. There's a reason we have a time of Scripture reading and a pastoral prayer, and even the announcements have some uh, biblical motivation behind them. Now, it's not that every single detail has to have a verse next to it of an explicit command from Jesus, but it is that wherever we find instructions from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church, we must follow that. And where there are no instructions, we should be guided by the principles that are consistent with God's Word. And where there are no guiding principles, we should use sanctified wisdom rather than the desires of the flesh to determine what to do. All of that is based on the fact that we are slaves of Christ, who is the Lord of the church. The moment we stop seeing ourselves that way, we will begin to do whatever's right in our own eyes. We will stop looking to be to Scripture to be our guide. We will start looking around to see what are the megachurches doing and try and follow that because, hey, that worked for them. We'll be guided by pragmatism and personal desires. We'll start to think that the ends justify the means, and if we can make church more attractive and have more people here, then it must be good. But we can't do that because we're not lords of the church. Jesus Christ alone is the Lord of the church. Now, of course, is there a measure of freedom that makes one church different than another? And of course, churches are different across cultures? Absolutely. But all of that is ought to be within the bounds of the clear teaching of Scripture. So as we look to the future, if we are going to be faithful to Christ, we must remember that we are His slaves. Identity number two. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ. Notice the next designation that Paul says of himself there in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This title of apostle is the most common way that Paul describes himself in his letters, and rightly so. Uh, It most clearly identifies his unique role in the church and the authority delegated to him by Jesus Christ which should cause any of his readers to pay attention to what he says. Because the Lord called Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles, uh, really to launch the church uh, among uh, the world outside of Israel, his correspondence required him to correct false doctrine, to correct false practices, as well as to give encouragements and answer questions and give additional teaching beyond what he was able to do in person. And so it was necessary that he remind his readers, some of whom he'd never met or they'd never met him, of the authority behind his letters. And so even here in Titus, as Paul makes a number of rather strong statements, such as saying about false teachers and their destructive impact on the church, he says, there are those who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Says that about false teachers. Now, if anybody else said that, you and I might respond, well, come on, really? Detestable, worthless for any good deed? I mean, they're a nice person. But when an apostle who has divine authority says that, we say, wow, okay, 
yeah, that is how serious false teaching is. Regarding instructions of Christian conduct, for example, he tells Titus at the end of chapter 2, these things, Christian conduct, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This teaching came from an apostle, and so Titus could communicate that teaching to the churches with the authority of an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? We don't exactly have a lot of those running around these days, right? There are some today who call themselves apostle, and maybe you've been part of a church or uh, denomination that has had apostles. Uh, Sometimes that's a self-designation that someone just says, hey, I'm an apostle. Uh, Sometimes they become an apostle through ordination of a collection of churches and other apostles. Yes, I did do the Google search. How do you become an apostle today? And that was interesting. But modern apostles are not apostles in the technical biblical sense. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. As you know, any building just has one foundation. And so that verse is one of the significant reasons why we don't believe that apostles are around today. Because once that foundation was established through the prophets and apostles, uh, their vital ministry and purpose no, was no longer needed. Scripture itself identifies requirements for apostleship. Uh, in, in defending his own apostleship, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, A true apostle was validated by the fact that they could perform miracles. And as you read the book of Acts, we see a number of things that Paul did where God used him to heal people. Another qualification of an apostle was that they must see Jesus. They must have seen Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, after listing the people Jesus appeared to after the resurrection, Paul says this, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle. He's not denying his apostleship, obviously, just expressing humility, because I I persecuted the church of God. So an apostle needed to have seen Jesus, an apostle needed to be validated through miracles, But specifically, they needed to be commissioned by Jesus Christ for a specific purpose. The word apostle simply means a sent one. And so to hold the office of an apostle, Jesus Christ has to have sent that individual and be appointed for the work he assigns. Well, in the account of his conversion in Acts chapter 9, Jesus tells Paul directly, get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. And right after that, Jesus appeared to Ananias who was instructed to go to Paul and Jesus said this to Ananias, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That was Paul's mission as an apostle. To proclaim Jesus Christ, to choose Gentiles and kings, and suffer as a result. Well, again, as you read the book of Acts and as you read Paul's epistles, that's exactly what he did. He fulfilled his commission as a slave and as an apostle of Jesus Christ at great cost to his personal safety and welfare, and ultimately it led to his death. 
Now, we don't know how long Paul was on the island of Crete, serving as an apostle, establishing the church there. That period is not recorded in Scripture, but whatever time he was there, and now this letter to Titus with instructions for the churches are all a representation or a fulfillment of his apostolic ministry. Now, what can Paul's apostleship teach us today? Well, as I noted, there is no uh, modern apostles in the technical biblical sense. The foundation is laid and there's no more need for them today. But in the non-technical sense, the concept of being sent and commissioned by Jesus Christ applies to all Christians. The Great Commission that we are to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. That commission is put into the hands of every person who has trusted in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18-20, to 20, Paul says this, and notice as I read the, the fact that Paul doesn't use the first person singular, but the first person plural. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to us. Now, who is the us and the we that Paul refers to? Well, I don't think it's Paul on his own. That would be a little weird for him to speak that way. We can easily say that it includes Paul and Timothy, whom Paul identifies at the beginning of the letter as his co-laborer. He's kind of co-sends him. Timothy co-signs the letter, if you will. But we can also include Titus in that because Titus was actually the one who took that letter from Paul to the Corinthian church, not only to ensure that it was read, but also to serve among them and ensure that Paul's instructions were followed. So Paul, Timothy, and Titus are ambassadors of Christ. And since Timothy and Titus are not apostles, clearly that title of ambassador is not limited to apostles. In fact, I think Paul makes it very clear who can take upon themselves that title of ambassador, and that would be anyone who carries the word of reconciliation. Anyone through whom God is using to make an appeal to unbelievers to be reconciled to God. All Christians are not apostles. All Christians are not evangelists or pastors. But all Christians are entrusted with the message of the gospel and are living witnesses to God's grace to the world. And Jesus himself commissions all of us, not only in the Great Commission, but also when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world. Peter calls all believers to be ready to speak the gospel when he wrote, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. He also says later in 1 Peter, but you, 
You, Hope Bible Church, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Paul may have been an apostle, but we are all ambassadors for Christ in the world. You are an ambassador for Christ. Are you a student? You are an ambassador for Christ to your teachers and your fellow students, even if that teacher happens to be your parent or your siblings. Are you a father or mother? You are an ambassador of Christ to your children. Are you married to an unbeliever? You are an ambassador of Christ to your spouse. Are you an employee? You're an ambassador for Christ to your bosses and your coworkers and anyone who might serve under you. Are you an athlete? You are an ambassador for Christ to your fellow teammates and to your opponents. Are you sick and in the hospital? You are an ambassador for Christ to the doctors and nurses who are taking care of you. Are you in court or in prison? You are an ambassador for Christ to the lawyers and the judges and the guards and the fellow prisoners. Later today, we, as we are enjoying ourselves at Centennial Park, we will be ambassadors for Christ to anyone who is around. Every time we encounter another human being, we are functioning in the role of an ambassador for Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean that every conversation has to be about Jesus, but that does mean that our conduct should reflect and represent Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a representative of Christ on the earth. That should fuel your life because there is no higher privilege than to represent Jesus Christ in the world. There is no greater privilege to know that not only have we been rescued from the eternal punishment that was due to us, not only have we been purchased by Christ and are now owned by Him, not only are we adopted into the family of God, but we get the privilege of serving and proclaiming Christ and His gospel to the world. Now, perhaps up to that point, it seems as though what I'm saying is the best way to represent Christ is to live a great life, to be successful, to be bold in your evangelism. Perhaps some of you are wondering, how can I be an ambassador for Christ when I am suffering so much? How can I be an ambassador for Christ when I am wrestling with my own sin? How do I serve as an ambassador when I'm constantly on the receiving end of the wrongdoing of others? If you find yourself being beat down or attacked or wrestling with your own sin, you actually have a greater opportunity to be an ambassador for Christ and represent Him than those for whom life is going really well. 
In 1 Peter 2, we read these difficult words. For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. But while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he didn't utter threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus lived his life from his first breath to his last breath, paving a path for us to follow. And his life serves as a model for us to imitate. And that includes even the final hours when he was betrayed by a close friend, unjustly arrested, illegally tried, tortured nearly to death, nailed to a cross and rejected by the Father. That's not the only suffering he ever experienced, but it certainly was the worst. And what Peter tells us is that the way Jesus responded in those final hours not only accomplished our redemption, but also serves as an example for us to follow and to imitate. I know, I know that some of you have suffered and are suffering in unspeakable ways. But God's word is telling you today that your suffering, that in your suffering, you are an ambassador of Christ, representing him to the watching world, even to those who are responsible for your suffering. There is no greater demonstration of Christ's obedience to the Father than in those final hours of life, where he trusted the Father even in the midst of great suffering. And so there is no greater way for you to represent and imitate and reflect Christ than in your own suffering. And for those of you who are battling with sin and feel you're often on the losing end of that battle, you too are an ambassador for Christ. Every time you get up from your failure and you repent of your sin and you commit afresh to follow Christ, there is no greater way to imitate Christ, or or I should say to reflect Christ, than to show the world how great Christ is than by continually engaging in the battle and showing that Jesus is worth it. As a church collectively and as Christians individually, if we are going to stay faithful to Christ, we must remember that we are his ambassadors. The way we live as a family of faith, the way that we deal with conflict among us, the way we respond to the sin in our fellowship, the way that we love and serve one another, as Dave was talking about earlier, all of that and more is the representation of Jesus to each other and the watching world. So as we close, the Lord has been faithful to us for these 24 years And I hope you'll join us this afternoon. It'll be a great time. I'm looking forward to it. Over the years, a number of faithful saints who have been vital instruments in God's hand to work and build and serve in this church have moved on. God has moved them on to other ministries and other places. Some have been called to glory. Just in the last two years, uh, we lost Paul Bodwin 
who was a leader and a teacher. He was an elder candidate, nearly became an elder before cancer took him to heaven. Lana Leake, Tom's mother, who, I, like I mentioned earlier, contributed in a multitude of ways, went to heaven two years ago. And of course, the man whom the Lord used to plant and to teach and to preach and to lead and to shepherd this church for all these years has been in the glorious presence of Christ for nearly four months now. While on earth, they would have been the first one to acknowledge their own weaknesses, their own failures, but they would also say more than anything that they were compelled to serve Jesus Christ because he is Lord. So how can we ensure that we who remain stay true and faithful to Christ for another 24 years and beyond? What will fuel our own faithfulness to the Lord? Well, it is that we must remember that we are slaves and ambassadors of Christ. We don't belong to ourselves. We owe everything to Him, and it is our joy and privilege to serve Him and not ourselves. Let's pray. Our great Lord and Master, you who have purchased us with your own blood. Lord, we confess how easily we think of ourselves independently. We forget how much we owe you and how we are obligated to serve you and to give of ourselves to you. And every time we come and every time we sing and we hear your word, we are reminded afresh of your goodness and your grace and your patience and your compassion and your glory. And I pray that as we continue to grow into the image of Christ individually and collectively, that we would be a people who see ourselves as your slaves and the high privilege that it is to be your slaves. And we would see ourselves as your ambassadors, that we would work and live in our homes and conduct ourselves out in the community in such a way that others would see us and say, there's something different about that person. And that we would have opportunities to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. We want to give praise to you. We want to give glory to you. We want others to know you as we have come to know you. And so we ask for your help as we fulfill these callings on our lives. In Christ's name, amen.